0: Aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with parapsychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Our topic today is Transitioning to Enlightenment. This is a special program. It's not part of our regular schedule. It came up suddenly. And I want to let you know right now that if you watch this video through to the end, you will have information presented at the end of this video that uh, if you are interested in our topic of transitioning to enlightenment, you might find of great value. My guest is my old friend Jeffrey Martin. He is the co-founder of the Transformative Technology Conference as well as the Transformative Technology Lab. He is also the founder of the Center for the Study of Non-Symbolic Consciousness where he has originated the Finders Course and the Explorers Course. I have done two previous interviews with him about this material and I'm linking to that right now in the upper right-hand corner of your screen. If you really want to delve into it in more detail than we're going to cover in this interview, check those links right now. Those are hot links you can link to directly from the YouTube video. He is co-author with Rod Pennington of a series of best-selling books that are fictional, but sometimes uh, I think of them as thinly disguised fiction, Whatever Happened to Mr. Magic, The Fourth Awakening, The Gathering Darkness, and the four-volume set of The Fourth Awakening Chronicles. In addition, he is the author of The Finders and the God formula. Once again, this is an internet conversation and now I'll switch over to the Skype video. Welcome, Jeff. It's great to see you again. Thank you so much. It's great to be back. We've done several interviews uh, in the past about your work with the Finders course. Subsequently, you've got a book out that uh, describes it, and and you've been doing more research. Uh, Let's talk about the uh, work that you've done since the last time uh, you were in the studio with me, uh, which was back when I lived in Las Vegas.
1: That's right. That was a great studio. It was really wonderful hanging out there with you and, you know, I don't know if you know this or not, but you are one of the most popular podcasts out there. I am on interviews all the time and there are only three podcasts that people ever email me about and you are one of those three and those three are an equal number. So congratulations. People love the way you interview, which is just, I'm so grateful to be back. Um... So, what we've done since the last time we were together, we were, we had run a big descriptive study. Of people who reported things like enlightenment, non duality, persistent mystical experience, which, if you remember, more or less, I started studying because I wasn't happy myself uh, and I wanted to get happier. And so I left business and I went back to school and I picked up some degrees that allowed me to study that stuff and training that allowed me to study it. And then I looked for who the happiest people were and I kind of distilled it down to that population, which I thought was going to be crazy. They sounded psychopathological, like nobody could really experience the things that they're representing. Uh, But then, you know, years later i couldn't find that psychopathology it certainly seemed legit i poked and prodded them and scanned them and you know measured them from every conceivable angle eventually deciding hey i should join them um and then we ran into a situation where we really had never collected before and after data and so for all of that time, I mean, it's sort of like, you know, how do you know who in the population is going to pop, right, and start experiencing this so that you can measure them first and then be like, okay, come back, you know, when you've had your experience. Um, so we had to find a way to create that. And I'd been all over the world, and I hadn't really found anything that was reliable enough that if you're investing a few thousand dollars per neuroscience, you know, subject, um, does not make your – Basically, it doesn't make your project go broke because so few people are actually able to come for the follow-up visit and collect the after data, right? So we had to create our own protocol, and that's exactly what we did. Uh, we did that back in 2014, which our previous shows together – uh, talk about. That was a four-month protocol. It was done as a public class, really. It was a big crowdfunded, crowdsourced effort so that it involved people all over the world that were normal people that were paying to participate in a normal environment instead of you know your typical undergraduate students that are forced to do it to get a grade in Psych 101 or something like that that is the default for psychology <laughs> subjects so often in the modern academic era. Um, and What we've done since then, basically, is... Um, actually switched gears a little bit and we started to get back into brain zapping so that seemed really mature like we were collecting data it was always the same thing people transitioned at the same times like it just got boring and routine and so we kept it out there collecting data kept it running by research assistants and PhD students and you know stuff like that didn't really think that much about it anymore the data just kind of kept coming in getting analyzed it was sort of always the same data uh, so I switched gears and started going transcranial ultrasound came around we started zapping people's brains trying to see if we could hit the neuroscience targets that were deep in the brain. And then COVID hit. Uh, so I was in uh, Iowa to work with a the university there with the, with the brainstem stuff. And I had basically loaded up, you know, six, $700,000 of equipment from the lab <clears throat> here in California and driven it across country in this van uh, to zap brains of people at a university in Iowa. And then COVID hits and you can't do that anymore, right? And so I went to a house nearby in Peoria, Illinois, which is where I'm from. And it was, you know, I thought, well, if I've got a shelter in place, I might as well shelter in place in this beautiful house along the river. And I was kind of thinking, like, what now? You know, like everybody else, like you're just sort of sitting there, right? And we had, I, I had in the back of my mind for a long time another experiment to do along the lines of our, um, Protocol that we created to get pre and post data to help people transition to this so that we could measure them before, measure them during, and measure them after and see what actually changes with them. When we did those experiments, we learned something really interesting. We learned that there was one set of methods that we were using that transitioned 60% of the roughly 70% of people that transitioned with the overall protocol. But you know how things are in science. I mean, you just sort of get in a rut. And you just keep running the same protocol over and over again. It's kind of a pain in the neck to file all the new paperwork, get the new protocol going. You're doing all kinds of other stuff. You're super busy. You know, you just sort of never get around to it, right? But with COVID, you're kind of sitting there looking at a river, uh, <laughs> not much else to do, right? And so I thought, hey, you know, now's the time. So I got up one day, sent out an email thinking maybe six or 10 people or something will sign up for this. I said, you know, this is unproven, but it's based on the previous research. I have no idea what's going to happen with it. Uh, but if you want to give it a try, I'd love to have you try it. And hundreds of people signed up for it. Like 800 plus people. It was stunning to me. Like Literally, I was talking to our research team saying, I don't know if 10 people are going to be interested in an unproven experiment like this from us. And we got such a large number of people uh, that we had to divide it up into different cohorts and pick a subset of them for the research so that the stats didn't go too crazy. You know how it is. You get too big an N, you don't believe the stats. You get too little an N, you don't believe the stats. You've got to get kind of that sweet spot in the middle um and so we ran this experiment and lo and behold 65% of people that took this transitioned and the psych data looked really close so we measure you know well-being and um stress and you know, depression and just all kinds of different, uh, stuff. We make people take all kinds of psych measures and the psych measures weren't equal by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, there's a big, you know, there is a difference between doing some meditating and doing, co- you know, positive psychology exercises and other cognitive exercises for four months versus six weeks. But it's not that big a difference. Uh, there are differences in effect size and, you know, but it was amazing. So it's a, it's an amazing thing. So that I'm clear about what you're doing. You took a
0: course that normally runs for four months and boiled it down to six weeks. And the 800 people who signed up for that are people who had not been through your previous courses. And they took the six week course. And, and it sounds like what you're saying is they got the, the same results that we've talked about roughly in previous interviews entering into, you used to call it a state of non symbolic
1: consciousness. Persistent non-symbolic experience or consciousness. Exactly. Depending upon the year you caught me in. Yeah. Which, which re- really is
0: about as close as one could get using psychological terminology to a, a relative state of enlightenment. Right. Totally. And, and what you found is that the six-week course is delivering the kind of results
1: you used to need to take four months to get. That's unbelievable. It's really unbelievable. I thought maybe it would do 40 or 50%, you know, tops because I shortened it. It wasn't just the thing that produced 60% from the original protocol. It was also shortened up, you know, like we jammed more stuff into weeks and stuff to get it down to six weeks. Otherwise, it would have been, it would have been about two to two and a half months if we didn't shorten the stuff up. And so I thought, well, that's going to trim some off it. You know, that'll maybe take it down. Maybe it'll, maybe best case, it'll be 40% or maybe 50% or whatever. Uh, And it came back and was like 65%. There were finders course people in it. We excluded them basically from the data. You know, they're, of course, they're going to sneak in, right? Because they're on the mailing list. And (laughs) they're like, I want to try that too, right? Uh, But we caught on and we asked the question in our surveys like, have you taken the finders course uh, protocol before so that we could screen them out? and we also uh, put in some questions. It turns out that a lot of people that were on our mailing list—it's um, not surprising—are in fundamental well-being, or in PNSE, or in persistent non-symbolic experience, right? Which we started calling fundamental well-being to be a little more friendly uh, to the to the public world that you know isn't used to big words and strange acronyms that we are in the psychological world. Um, And so we were able to also screen out those individuals in order to get down to the number of people that had actually transitioned and then what the percentage was for those people. So uh, because
0: you did all of this during the COVID lockdown, I have to assume that this course was done online.
1: Totally. It's, yeah, it's all online. Our protocols have all been online so that we get people from all over the world, you know, I mean, just so many different countries. Uh and the Finder's course protocol, because of that, has actually been translated into some really disparate languages, like there's a Japanese version, for example. I mean, you think, okay, it's not a surprise there's a German version, right? But I'm kind of amazed that there's a Chinese version, that there's a Japanese version, that there's and it's funny, you know, the language is so different between these cultures, right? So they're like, How would I say this <laughs> in Chinese or Japanese or whatever? So it's been online from the beginning, in other words. It's been online from the very, very beginning. We did the original tests, you know, in person, onesie-twosie with people in the very earliest days. But the minute we hit groups, uh, I thought, you know, we really, since we're going to be doing groups, let's see if we can get geographic diversity. And so even our pilot had someone from South Africa, someone from Wales, um, and then the rest of the people were in America, basically across the country, spread across the different time zones.
0: So, how long has it been since you uh, did your very first finders course?
1: 2014. It's been a long time. That was early, like January or February 2014. Yeah, six years. So,
0: one could interpret this data as, as suggesting, well, you've just learned over six years how to get results in a shorter amount of time. An- another way to in- Interpret it, though, and and I wonder, is if there's something happening uh, in the population as a whole that people's uh, consciousness
1: expansion is accelerating? You know, it makes you wonder. It was, it's interesting. I saw, that. you know, I mean, Rupert Sheldrick, you know, our, a lot of our mutual friends talk about stuff like this, right? And, um, you know, they research it and, you know, I regard them as serious, legitimate You know, in many cases, brilliant researchers. Right. And so I haven't done that work. I don't feel like I can, you know, say, well, that's wrong. That can't be true or, you know, whatever else you got to take that evidence in. Uh, as coming from someone that is, you know, oftentimes really amazing in terms of what they've produced over the course of their life, right? So for sure, it could be that. And I, you know, I remember reading this fascinating dissertation one time, which people like us do, right? I mean, we're <laughs> probably not normal in that way, right? But it was like from the communication school of University of Pennsylvania or Penn State or something like that. And it looked at the use of mantras. And what they had done was this brilliant study. I mean, I just thought, my God, that is like the cleverest test that I've ever seen of this. And so they took like the Hare Krishna mantra or something like that, which I absolutely could not tell you what that is, you know, off the cuff. Um, And then they they basically worked with uh, with world class linguistics people, you know, the linguistics department and and basically said, can you create something that's gibberish but is essentially the linguistic equivalent to this. Because, I mean, you know, I, I'm pretty sure the Harley, I, I, don't, it was, I don't think that mantra was in English, right? And so if you give it to your average American, it's going to sound like gibberish kind of either way, right? And so they thought, you know, well, we'll just give it again, like randomly to psych 101 undergrads or whoever, right? Um, and, you know, they're both going to sound like gibberish, essentially. Right. And so they had it, but and they just, they crafted like this masterpiece pseudo mantra and the relaxation response that occurred in the physiology from the real mantra versus the made up mantra was just like huge. Uh, and so it's like, you know, wow, that seems to suggest that, you know, either, either the linguists couldn't get something that was equivalent in terms of what it produced in the physiology, right? Or maybe there's something to what people like Rupert, you know, tell us from their research and you've got thousands of years or something of people saying this mantra, all of them, you know, leaning to these increasingly relaxed states or altered states of consciousness or whatever else. And it really does have something maybe that, you know, comes along with it. That stuff, research like that, I think is so fat. There's not enough of it. You know, I wish more people, would sort of have the courage to explore that kind of stuff. I can't imagine the guts it must have taken to do that dissertation in a mainstream school like one of the Pennsylvania schools right you know that yourself because of your days back at you know Berkeley right I mean God talk about guts I mean you were like the original person that had guts with all this.
0: Well, just uh, for benefit of our viewers, Sheldrake's theory is that there's something called a morphic field and that when people practice a certain discipline like a mantra over generations and generations, that creates a uh, morphic resonance within the you could call it the newest sphere, or the, the field of consciousness in which we're all immersed. So, it makes it easier and easier for subsequent people who, who use that particular mantra. Not that the mantra all by itself is intrinsically any different than the uh, nonsense syllables that are arranged together, but because people have been practicing over generations, uh, they create
1: the field. Yeah, who knows, right? I can say that more people aren't transitioning from our original research protocol. You know, like it hasn't, it wasn't like year one, 70%. I mean, in the first four experiments, it was like 73% of people. By the time we got to the first 11 experiments, it had washed down to like just over 70% of people and it stayed relatively the same. So it's not gone like 65, 70, (laughs) 75, 85% with that over time. We don't see anything that we would consider maybe like a field effect type thing there.
0: When you use the word transition, you're really referring uh, going from a state of consciousness maybe akin to what Freud would have called normal neurosis to a state of persistent fundamental well-being, a state uh, of, um, uh, um, well, like enlightenment in, in some regards
1: yeah there's hundreds of terms for these all around the world right and as you know from our previous interviews and just you know the fact that we're we chat about this stuff from time to time uh we're in the same fields and circles and you know stuff like that um there's we've cataloged all kinds of different types of of this experience. We sort of put them along a continuum. We call them locations instead of types or levels to get around politics and, you know, value judgments and stuff like that around them. Um, And so what's interesting is that in our, in our experiments really consistently, what we've seen is what matches what we saw in our field research for the first many years. And that is, I mean, we're, you know, 15 years into this project at this point. I started this when I was 35, did it all the way through all my late thirties. And then through all the way through my forties, I just turned 50 in June. Um, and so this has been a long quest, right? Um, one of the things that we see is that, for location, so let's just say location one, location two, which you can think of as type one, type two, type three, type four, type five, and so on, right? Um, if you think about location one, there's a lot more people in location one than location two. There's a lot more people in location two than location three. There's a lot more people in location three than four, four than five, five than six, and so on. So the air sort of gets increasingly rare as you go to later and later locations, and that's exactly what we've seen. Uh, it matches though that way what we uncovered in the field research with that um the the experiments do the same thing and so people basically you know land and stick and there's more people that come out of the finders course and now the 45 days to awakening we've been calling it just 45 days to awakening challenge uh, to give it kind of a cool name that attracts people to want to do it um and so You know, there's more people at location one than at location two, more people at location two than location three. So the fascinating thing to me really right from the start with the with the early even from the earliest finders course data was that people were sort of landing in the same proportions that we were discovering them in the field uh, prior to that, which was amazing, I think.
0: For benefit of our viewers, I'm going to link in the upper right-hand corner of the screen to our two earlier interviews on this work and the locations. Uh, I would encourage viewers who may be a little confused at this point to check out those earlier interviews. But uh, from what I recall, Jeff, Even though uh, it might seem as if there's a hierarchy here, you made a point of saying that location five, which may be more rarefied, is not necessarily better than location one.
1: That's absolutely right. We think it needs to match your life. You know, so so often what has been the case traditionally is it's all about fundamental well-being for fundamental well-being sake. Right. And so it's like pedal to the metal, go as far as you can, you know, as fast as you can. You're you know, it's like you're in a race sometimes because it's a death you know, thing of some kind. I mean, the, just sort of like the sect or tradition or whatever that believes in it, believes that it relates in some way to what happens in your afterlife. So you want to get as far as you can because that benefits you after you die, right? Other times, just because it's it's just sort of evolved as a belief around well-being or, you know, other sorts of things. But we live in the modern world. I mean, if you're a re- if you're retired and you live alone, you know, and you're sort of like a modern monk or you're in a monastery... Great, that's totally fine. Fundamental well being for fundamental well being's sake, pedal the metal, you know, go for it. No reason not to go for it. What the heck, right? Uh, you have to be a little careful, have some other people around you when you get into five, six, seven, eight, because there are some pretty deep things that can happen in your brain at those points. You want to have people around you to check on you, make sure that you're safe and OK and stuff, that you don't get caught in any glitches that can occur and things like that. But generally speaking, pedal the metal is totally cool if you're in that type of situation. Right. But for the rest of the world, who is <laughs> was married with kids or grandkids and jobs and mortgages and everything else. You know, like you can't it's yeah you know, I haven't met a lot of people who figured out how to run a business from location three, for instance, which is sort of like the classical end of the Christian mystical tradition where you're like immersed in love and joy and you know it's divine and you know all of that, right? I mean, as you might imagine, if you're responsible for a budget and you're in that state of consciousness and people are coming to you being like, "You know, I could just I just need a little bit more in my paycheck. You can give away all of those resources and make your company collapse pretty quickly, right uh, and so. Better to be in two, in location two, you know, one step back for that type of situation. Even for me, I've experienced, you know, many of these different locations, but I've, I've got a busy life. I've got all kinds of, you know, stuff, projects going on all over the place. I keep myself as in a maximum amount of well being I can and still the highest degree of functionality, which for me personally is the end of location two. So that's exactly right. You know, it's, we really sort of see it as you need to have it match your life in today's terms it's it was really great that it was you know true for all of those guys that were writing the books that were living in monasteries or wandering in the forest or whatever they were doing you know years or living in cultures where it would support you you know if you're a wandering mystic in india you're you know your odds of being fed are probably a lot better than if you're sleeping under a bridge in chicago as a mystic right uh, and so it's just like a, a bit of a modern you know, practical thing. Because of my own background
0: in parapsychology, I'm very curious as to uh, where do people report unusual kinds of psychic experience, out-of-body experience, psychokinesis, maybe uh, interdimensional contacts? Uh, does that occur in some locations and not in others?
1: You know, it, it can occur in most locations. I would say, um, and in fact, you—it's—it's it's complicated data. That data is really complex, and we need to do a better job of looking into it, frankly, than we have. We've almost picked it up anecdotally, more as we've gone along, than as a direct exploration. So let me give you one example where, uh, for a long time, when I was, it just worked out this way. You know how data is. Um, You know, in any statistics class, the teacher can tell when you're faking your statistics homework. Right. Because, you know, if they give you something and it's like, you know, well, it should be a 50 50 thing. You know, you'll be like one zero zero one one zero one zero. And the pattern is just so obvious that you made it up. Right. Um, And so one of the fascinating things about. Uh, that happened in our early research was that I kept run. I just ran into like the first, I don't know, 10, 20, maybe 30 people more that I ran into for that were our research subjects. They had all had these amazingly mystical experiences in childhood. Right. And so it was like angels and God and other dimensions. And it was all around the same time frame of ages for them. You know, it was like age four to six, generally speaking, you know, and so they all talked about these early transitions oftentimes and maybe they lost it a little bit in their teens or as they age, but then they came back to it. Right. And I remember sitting in there thinking, all right, I'm on a fool's errand if I'm looking for more well-being in this direction, because I don't remember any angels when I was you know, aged four or five or whatever, right? And of course, you know, the next 20 subjects, none of them mentioned that, right? And so it was like, whew, thank goodness. Right? It's just the way the numbers sort of stacked up. And so you could have things like that where where the people were literally experiencing it, you know, right from childhood. And in many cases, when that's the, when like that, it's been a part of their life the entire time. And they actually don't view it as related to fundamental well-being. They view it as sort of like this parallel thing where it's like, well, I have this set of experiences and that's one thing. But that's not really what you're asking about. And I don't really know if that even relates to this other thing. Um And so, you know, that's one type of person that you encounter. And then you encounter people who, who will occasionally have what I almost think of as a pathological transition to this, like a really powerful transition. Um, You know, Eckhart Tolle is like a very famous mystic. And he talks about how he would like sit on a park bench for a couple years outside of Cambridge's library or something like that, if I'm remembering the story right. Um, and, you know, that was such a great period in his life. He was sinking into this bliss and uh, all of that. Right. He had a really powerful profound type of experience not not a not the type of experience you have if you're you know married with kids and need to keep you with your job like you don't want to have a transition like he had right it's very disruptive to your life fortunately it's a tiny tiny fraction of people that have that type of experience that they've got to then wrestle and deal with right but those types of experience can absolutely have the types of things that you're talking about you know people go people report you know, being able to feel like they can manipulate matter. And they have like examples, uh, you know, of how they've done that. They have PK stuff, as you would call it, psychokinesis stuff, as you would call it. They have all kinds of psychic and intuition stuff, like they would talk about. And that's, of course, when you're coming along 30 years later, pretty hard to verify, right? From our standpoint and from a research scientist standpoint, it's all social science data, right? So we collect that. And then there's later locations. And so, People, it's very routine when you get past six, seven, eight. When you're starting to talk about those very later, rarer locations, to have people start reporting a lot more accurate intuition. Um, you know, it seems like uh, it just becomes routine for them to sort of have what might be called in, in sort of the field non ordinary information sources. You know, that are providing them with information. Some people, there's one research subject that we had who has had transitions through a bunch of these locations. And they report that that the transitions always are associated with a being showing up and that it's always a different being. And so like some being, you know, just as an example, maybe some being shows up and the room fills with light, right? And bam, suddenly they're in an entirely different stage or location of fundamental well-being than before. And then we find after about location nine, Uh, It seems like by location nine, you know, so much of your individual self, the, the old patterns of you. Those old neurotic patterns, the old programming patterns and whatnot have been scrubbed away that people by location nine are basically by eight and also nine. But there is a distinction. Um, If somebody goes from eight to nine, though, they'll say the same thing in eight or nine. You've got to kind of suss it out in the research. Um, But they basically say it's just the universe looking out my eyes at that point. And, and, And it becomes very hard for them to even tell in some instances where they're getting information sources, you know, from. It's like there's just sort of this blending of almost like a field of information. Uh, and then when they move past that stage into sort of the next cluster, and like one through four is sort of one cluster, you can think of five through nine as another cluster, and you can think of ten through whatever, right, as another sort of set of state, meta stage of this, if you will. Uh, that's when you have people talk a lot more about um, what they feel like they can really affect things you know in the world and sometimes you know i'll get calls from people who in a way accidentally sort of trip into you know a very late location like that and aren't prepared for it their minds aren't ready for it it's you know they you know they think they've gone crazy uh, and by maybe by society standards, they sort of have gone crazy, um, except that other people have gone crazy in predictable ways and they can come back from that crazy in predictable ways and, you know, all of that. Right. So and maybe we're just good at helping them. I don't know. But those, you know, when someone falls into those later stages, I mean, when they fall past location nine um, and, you know, they become Paranoid of their thoughts because they feel like they're watching their thoughts manifest and I had one person that I was actually it was somebody who had been um, a long time sort of research he wasn't he wasn't I wouldn't call him a participant up to that point but he was somebody who was interested in our research knew a lot about our research. Was in Silicon Valley. So he's kind of in the social circles of sort of our transformative technology space, our technology for well being space. A very, very well known guy in Silicon Valley, like a very famous problem solver in Silicon Valley. The guy that, like, when there's, you know, there's like six guys in the world that might be able to solve your technical problem. He's one of the guys that you call and pay an enormous amount of money to try to solve your technical problem, right? Um, And he also has this proclivity for, for fundamental well-being for PNSE. You know, it's like, he's like one of the Michael Jordans of PNSE. Like he's just like, it's like this, the continuum is just like this convenient sliding scale to him that he can sort of roam all over. And he'd gotten himself kind of stuck. um, In a later look, he went on a meditation retreat, which you probably shouldn't do if you're the Michael Jordan of this type of stuff when you're in the middle of like business mergers and stuff, which is what he did. Um, And he came back kind of stuck too far out there. And so Um, he, you know, basically people get in touch with me, uh, and they're like, including like his venture capital people, (laughs) and they're like, Hey, can you help him get back so that we can finish this, you know, this stuff? Right. Uh, so I go out and I meet with him and I, and I'm like, you know, are you experiencing this? And he's like, yes. I'm like, are you experiencing this? And I'm just like checking off the boxes of the locations, right? the farther locations. And finally I get to one and he's like, no, I haven't, I haven't got to that yet. I'm like, okay. So now I have a sense of where you're at. Um, I'm like, well, how are you doing personally with this? And he's like, I'm kind of, you know, really concerned because I feel like even if I can like think things into reality, right, which sounds nuts, you know, from the outside world, right? And so I said, you know, what well, I think anyone in my situation probably would have said, which is got an example, <laughs> you know, and he said, and he, and so he's very, as you might imagine, like a engineering dude, you know, um, And so he came up with this example of, like, this physics problem that hadn't been solved in, like, 100 years or something. I don't know. I'm not a physicist, right? I looked into it at the time. It's, like, a lot of years later. I don't remember the details of the physics problem anymore. Um, And he's like, you know, he's like, this is going to be solved in the next – he's like, I can give you the solution if you'd like. But he's like, I think what's happening is that I'm just able to arrive at these solutions, and then someone else I'll see in the news – tomorrow the next day the day after that someone has solved this problem with the same solution that i've come to in my mind i'm like okay well that's a legitimate test like i did a google nobody solved it you know and sure enough like the next day some mathematician in new york or something announced a solution to it that was like all over you know the fringe physics that people that can understand arcane math world um, and I, you know, there's, so there's, there's all kinds of interesting anecdotes like this, you know?
0: Well, it does strike me that, uh, simply entering into a state of, uh, as you call it, persistent non-symbolic experience or fundamental wellbeing, uh, is, is wonderful, but people also
1: do need a supportive community around them. They do. Yeah. And that's been the main part of our research for the last several years while the Finders course was just sort of on autopilot, you know, brain zapping uh, to see if we can get to a button instead of a course that people have to take, right? Um, but also really helping them to, if you think about it, I like to say it like this, you know, kind of over here, you've got normal culture, right? And this is a goic narrative self, as I call it, um, you know, the Freudian version that you refer to it as whatever we want to label it as right um and it is unyielding in what it is like it is of by and for that version of the self right and then over here you know you've kind of got what has always been fundamental well-being for fundamental well beings sake right and this crowd has always been like we just need to keep pulling over here in our direction right and they never really figured out like how is it that you integrate With culture, because culture isn't going to bend. It's not going to be like, you guys look awesome. Let's just come to you, right? I mean, it's like these guys are going to be more and more and more on the fringe effectively, and it affects, you know, it affects all aspects of your life the more you go into fundamental well-being the more you kind of go into the cave and the more you retreat from the world and all of that and so what we have been working on for the last several years in addition to the other stuff that i mentioned is really that integration that's exactly right and so um, You know, we started it with the Explorers course experiment. We said we would say people go from seeking to finding and from finding to exploring because they're not like compulsively seeking something in the world anymore. But they're also not dead, you know, and the world is still there. They're interacting with the world. They're just kind of exploring the world now from this nifty new place. Um, but. Over the years, since the Explorers course started, which has been four or so years, at least now, um, I I really started to notice, like, okay, hold on. We should be trying to help more with the integration with the world more actively. Like, there are all kinds of tendencies that happen with fundamental well-being that make you want to sort of pull off into the cave. Um, And in the same sense that we wouldn't allow a baby to raise itself, even though it has its own innate sense of what it should do in every moment right you uh, know this the the Christian terms like born again is really kind of true for this you it does feel sort of born again right and it and it brings with it a whole new development path and a whole new development trajectory that really nobody had really explored before and there is a two-year cycle right after it there's a seven-year cycle there's a repeating seven-year cycle just in the same way that normal developmental psychologists have figured this out and it's all baked into our culture right our parents know how to raise us our school Know how to raise us, culture knows how to shape us. You know, the, the egoic developmental psychology path is pretty well understood at this point. But there's this other developmental psychology path that's associated with fundamental well-being that has never really been researched, that isn't really understood. And so we've been putting a lot of resources and a lot into that, um, trying to get to the point where when you meet a finder, you're not like, that person seems a little odd, but instead are like, wow, that person has something that I want, <laughs> right? So that's why we call them exemplars, you know, try to get that sort of magnetic thing in there. And that's a new, the exemplar part of that is, an, is a new program. Well, it's one of the reasons I'm putting out
0: three or more videos every week is to try and help strengthen the larger coalition of uh, networks and people such as yourself and organizations with which we're affiliated to uh Build a a real uh, movement in our culture, a sustainable movement.
1: As you know, I mean, you, I've said it before to you privately, probably on video. I mean, the archive that you have built up and the information networks that have come from that, the number of times people send me a Jeffrey Mishlove video to make a point about something that they want to talk about in an email is not small right? I mean, it's just this enormous archive that you've built that is used by so many people. It's amazing. Well,
0: we're growing. And in, in fact, it's worth mentioning, we're creating a searchable database. So you can put any search term you want into the database. It will take you to the very spot in each of our videos where uh, that term is discussed. And and also, we're planning to expand it to include not just our own videos, but uh, videos that come out of this larger network, this larger coalition of related uh, organizations and people and entities that are uh, working along parallel lines with us.
1: That's awesome. Yeah, that's always the problem, right? Is It's all locked up at like minute 1742 or something. And how do you know?
0: Yeah. Well, we, you, we have the technology to do that now. Uh, so you have a, a new course that's starting soon. We're going to release this video quickly, uh, outside of our normal schedule because, uh, I think you mentioned it's like two or three weeks. Another course is going to begin. So this normally I go for timeless interviews, but this one is timely. Uh, so let's, let's, let's talk about that.
1: That's right. So um, the first, we did three cohorts of 45 days. The first two were the experiment. The third one was just to be nice to those people's friends that just kept pestering us. Um, and we didn't collect the same data from them. We just let them take the, take the thing as a program, right? And, the, you know, it's the first time that we've really had something that anyone could use because it's only six weeks long. You know, it's much less time and resource intensive. And we, for the pilot, we basically, for the finder's course, it's expensive. It's, Three grand, basically, to go through the finder's course and the explorer's course and all of that, which four months and $3,000 limits the number of people that can actually take advantage of something like that, right? And we, as you know, we're not to the button yet. We're working on the button where you can stick the thing on your head and push the button. But that's 10 years away or something. Who knows, right? Um, and so this is the first time that we've had um, this ability to really have something that could affect people at a mass level. So what I did with the people that went through the first three – cohorts those first 800 people is i basically said listen we can't we can we subsidize this like we basically paid for you guys to take this course right we can't offer this course for 120 dollars to tons of people without losing our shirt um, but we can do it if you guys were willing to volunteer if we can make this a volunteer-led community thing if you believe in this and the transformation that you've had a part of it and everything else then let's do another one you know, let's I've got my 50th birthday every year for my birthday. I announce, you know, sort of co- try to announce cool stuff, try to release something cool. This was an obvious no brainer. So I'm like, let's do another one of these. Uh, and so we couldn't do it on my birthday because that was too short I notice. Um, we didn't even have all the data in and stuff, you know, by that point. Uh, so we're doing another one probably around probably on July 18th. Um, that's the date we're shooting for. Today is the fourth of July. Today is the fourth happy fourth of July to everybody that's in America. Um, but yeah, so it's it's a tight timeline. There's over a hundred, there's like a hundred and fifty volunteers that are working diligently to make this happen and to to pull this off. And then our whole staff is like just totally heads down on it. Um and I you know, I think it's just it's just such an amazing thing that has kind of happened here. And so who knows, you know, maybe there was something special with COVID and it's going to be like 10% of people who transition from it, uh, when they're not locked in their house, you know, depressed and bored. Um, but I suspect that, you know, that that number is going to hold up based on all of my experience with this type of research in the past. And so we're trying to just get a bunch more people into it for this for you know kind of one more run of this thing and maybe we can keep it alive after that i don't know we'll see how it goes i've never done stuff with volunteers before we've always been our lab staff and everything screwed down super tight and you know all that
0: so there's a website people can go to to register
1: there is it's 45 days dot o n e so the number four the number five days I literally just d a Y-S dot period uh, O-N-E, 45 days dot one, which if you remember, I picked the one because that was an ongoing non-symbolic experience. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, oh, there's a one. 45days.com was taken, you know. So. Oh, okay. Well, we're going to put that uh, in the
0: description that follows this video as as well. If people uh, couldn't capture it from the screen, I've just run it across our screen uh, also. So uh, I'm really delighted to see you again, Jeff. It's a pleasure so great to, to, see you too. <laughs> to connect with you. You're doing fabulous work. My own feeling is that, that things really are accelerating, that something is happening in the culture Maybe because on the flip side, uh, things are getting worse and worse in some areas. So they have to get better and better in others to uh, compensate for it. And for people who are ready to take that leap and transition, I recommend
1: your uh, course. I do. Thanks so much. I can't thank you enough for having me on on such short notice. This was so great of you. Um, and you know, I'm always such a huge fan. I just really appreciate that. And I appreciate, you know, every now and then somebody sends me an email and is like, you've been on Jeffrey Mishlove. Can you email him and introduce me? I want to meet, you know, this, I, you're always so nice to those people too. You're so great with the fans that I send your way and everything. So just thanks so much for all that you're doing. My pleasure.
0: Uh, it's great to see you again. Thank you for being with me. Thank you. And for those of you watching, thank you for being with us.